0: Scripture's Second Thessalonians chapter 2, a passage we began looking at last Lord's Day, and we'll continue to make our way through it today. 2 Thessalonians 2, for today I'll read verses 1 through 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And are being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for mercy shown to us, especially giving us your word. We thank you that your word is truth. It illuminates our understanding, even when we come to tough passages like this, you are still our teacher. You show us what you are doing and how we can live and obey in the light of that. So I pray this morning you would make these matters clear to us and help us to learn uh, your scriptures, to learn your truth, and to respond with faith, obedience, and thanksgiving. Lord, we do thank you for being at work among this congregation as we'll have the privilege today of receiving another New member, you have been adding to this church in these times. We thank you for that. We thank you for visitors during these months. That Though we may live in different times, Lord, you are still at work to build your kingdom. So be pleased to continue that. We long to be an assembly uh, that worships you according to your word, that pursues the Great Commission and works for the kingdom of God and does what you want us to do. Without you, we can do nothing. So thank you for being at work, and please continue to do that. We, we give you our sincere thanks for the mercies you show. We do pray for the ongoing well-being of our congregation, that people would continue to stay well, that where there's sickness, that people would recover. Thank you for the way you've brought the families through during this, uh, the people in our church or, or relatives that have gotten sick, and yet you've taken care of them. We are grateful, so may those mercies continue, and would you provide for your people. And help us to live as uh, your children during this time. We pray for uh, the affairs of our nation, the country in which we live, that you would show mercy to us and that you might uh, control events, even as we read of in this word, that you're controlling, you're restraining and and directing everything according to the end you've designed. May we see that and trust in that, and would you please be gracious to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin today with a lighthearted story. It's obviously a serious passage, but sometimes even a lighthearted story can capture what the text is getting after. I found a video on YouTube this week that's dated to January of this year. And it is a video in which there's a wedding taking place, and a group of bridesmaids go and bang on the door of their friend, the last bridesmaid, in order to wake her up. And in the video, all the bridesmaids are dressed, they're ready to go, they could walk into the ceremony at any minute, and they're banging on the room for their friend, telling her, hey, you've overslept, you're going to miss the wedding. If you don't get up and get ready, you are going to be late, and there's going to be disaster. And this girl, Anna, she begins to frantically get ready, and she's just on the verge of tears, even crying at different points throughout the video, visibly disturbed. But what she's oblivious to throughout is that some of her friends keep smiling and smirking and looking at the camera as she's in hysterics. You see, according to the video's description, Anna is always late. And so the other bridesmaids have conspired to wake her up early in order to make sure that she is on time for the wedding. And the video ends when the whole group of bridesmaids arrive in the lobby of the hotel. They encounter another member of the wedding party. And that person is is pleased to see them but confused and says, why are you all ready so early? And that's when Anna looks and says, wait a minute, what time is it? They tell her it's 1.30 and that the wedding is still four and a half hours away. Well, I hope those bridesmaids are all still friends, by the way. But you can see how what they designed to do worked out. But you even see how it might connect to a passage like this. You see, here was a person who thought she had missed an important event, who was shaken by the misinformation that she had overslept but then had visible relief, though she was a little annoyed at first, too. She did eventually smile before the video ended. But had visible relief when she learned she had not missed the big moment. Misinformation can shake you, but truth settles you. Well, last week we started looking at 2 Thessalonians 2. And here was a situation in which Paul must combat misinformation. Misinformation concerning both the timing and the nature of Jesus' second coming. Someone, whether through proclaiming or writing a letter with Paul's name on it, had convinced them that the day of the Lord had already come. They probably reinterpreted the second coming in a more spiritual or invisible sense. In other words, they weren't looking for a a manifest, glorious appearing, but rather some kind of realized coming of the Lord, a new spiritual state of existence, or what have you. We're not given a ton of details, but that's the picture that emerges from other verses. So in other words, to a church that was suffering, they were now thinking that there's no obvious relief coming. To a church that had buried loved ones, possibly, Since they had formed the church, they now did not have hope that they would rise again from the dead. Their their expectations, their future hopes, had been shaken. And you can see how that would disappoint and alarm them. So Paul writes this letter to comfort them. And and I hope that theme stays clear through uh, the preaching of this text, even with all the different interpretive things we have to work through. Paul's goal here is to comfort them. Ironically, to remind them of things he had already told them and reassure them that they have not missed the Lord's return. Rather, when he comes, it will be visible, it will be unmistakable. And as we also see in this passage, before he comes, there will be certain visible events. So Jesus is coming, Paul affirms. But first... Before he appears, there are certain truths we must remember, certain things even we should be on the lookout for before he appears. Now last week we started looking at the truths Paul lays down in this passage, the things you need to reckon with, the things you need to know before Jesus comes. The first was that false teachers will try to unsettle you from truth. Again, someone masquerading as Paul or even making their way into the assembly had led them astray on the nature of the second coming. We want to be a church that knows the scriptures well enough where we can discern truth from error, even when error masquerades as Christian. Today, I want to look at the second truth, which is this. Wicked forces will try to deter you from faithfulness. We need to look out for false teachers that would unsettle us from truth. But now today I want to focus on wicked forces that try to deter you from faithfulness. And we'll highlight those from verses 3 and 4. Now in verse 3, Paul mentions two events that must take place before the Lord's return, one, the occurrence of the rebellion, and two, the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now, these two events are connected. I don't think it's one, then the other. Rather, these two events go hand in hand. And as we begin to talk about these, this is where we're going to see some of the areas where there's not 100% agreement on who these people or what these events might be. You might, you might have heard preaching before that's a little different from what I will give you today. We need to answer the question, what kind of rebellion is this? What, what is this? Or who is this man of lawlessness? How might we know when they appear? And So I'll pro- define the terms as we've proceeded and try to lay out a good argument. But let me tell you up front where I think these verses are pointing. The events described here are the kinds of events that occur throughout redemptive history. In other words, as God pursues his saving plan, as he brings his kingdom about throughout history, these are the kinds of events that occur. There are times of rebellion. There arise lawless leaders. And, in addition, eventually... There will be a final rebellion and a final man of lawlessness who will appear before or immediately before the Lord returns. I think that's the picture that Paul's plugging into here, based on the rest of the scriptures, what we read in both the Old and New Testament. So, what I want to demonstrate today is the idea that these events occur repeatedly, or there have been events like this before in God's history. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more from the next verses, five, six, and seven and whatnot, on why there will be one final manifestation. So let's start with the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. In order to do this, I've I've got to be a little more teachy today. In other words, I want to read some scriptures to you, I want to refer to some things uh, from other passages that we've looked at before, and just try to paint this picture for you of what God's history looks like with reference to people like this. So let's talk about the rebellion. The Bible talks or speaks often of times of rebellion and connects them to opposition to God's people and prophetic events, the end times or the last days, the time in which we now live. So in Daniel 8, you have the vision of the ram and the goat a vision that anticipates the rise of the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires, the empires that would come immediately after Daniel's day, living in the Babylonian Empire. Now, out of the Greek empire would arise four powers, and these are symbolized in the vision by four horns. One of those horns fights against God and his people. And listen to how Daniel 8.12 describes that time. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to the horn. It prospered and everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. And the next verse states that this vision here concerns the rebellion that causes desolation. Likewise, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So rebellion, particularly against the worship of God and the true faith. Now let me also introduce this idea of the man of lawlessness. You can see how he ties in to these times. The man of lawlessness appears to be a person of authority, a ruler who fights against God and his people during these times of rebellion. So let me read you a few more passages from Daniel. And as I read these, if you want to note them and go back and reread them, go for it. But just listen. Listen for these themes that recur. Opposition to God. Opposition to God's people. Rebellion and lawlessness tying in with that opposition. We just read Daniel 8. 12. Listen to the verses right before them, verses 10 and 11. The horn grew until it reached the host of the heavens and threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. So he fights against God. He fights against God's people. He goes into the sanctuary and usurps it. Listen to Daniel 9, 26 and 27. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, or Messiah, will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So again, a ruler, Messiah is opposed, he's cut off, and then comes this ruler who fights against the sanctuary and worship. And lastly for now, Daniel eleven, thirty-one 31 to 35. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So here's the first thing just to grasp from these passages before we even wonder, okay, when were they fulfilled? How do they fit in to the Bible's timeline? What do we find out about these times? There are rulers who fight against God and his people. They cause distress for God's people because of their actions. The biblical ideas that emerge from these verses speak of what? A man of lawlessness. One who arises in conjunction with rebellion. So what Daniel does here and what the Bible often does is it's like plowing a field. It goes through and starts to dig out this trench. And when you return, it digs it out a little deeper. And it makes this profile from which you can then begin to paint a picture of these kinds of people and even understand then how historical figures might fit into the trajectory. That's what we see so far from Daniel. Look at the other description here in 2 Thessalonians in verse 4. The other description that Paul gives of this man and then we'll try to put the pieces together. Verse 4 reads, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. With those words in mind, Listen to one more passage from Daniel, chapter 11, verses 36 to 39. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. There, once again, a man of lawlessness. He doesn't recognize the true God. He doesn't recognize any God, for that matter. He views himself in God-like terms, and he then exalts himself accordingly. He wants what belongs to God to come to him. He loves the God of fortresses, power, and might. So there's the picture the Bible's painting rebellion against God and his ways, a man of lawlessness who would usurp the place of God in order to lead God's people astray. So who is this person? How might we identify him? Well, we are helped by the fact that some of the passages I've read you this morning have already been fulfilled. And so God helps, like I said, provide the profile for identifying people that might fit the bill. Now, the passages that I've referred to, we've actually already looked at before. We went through Daniel, and so we, we've studied some of those together. We also studied Mark 13, Jesus' Olivet discourse, which helped shed light on what Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians. So I can't go through all those details again, but I do want to quickly review those passages in order to see how all the pieces. Fit together. So let me refer to some of those again in summary form. And if you want the notes, you can ask me. You go back and listen to any of those. Be happy to help uh, with the details. But Daniel 8, we read from that twice today. It envisions a horn, a ruler. He will defile the sanctuary, take away the Levitical sacrifices, trample truth, and cause the Lord's people to. To suffer under his hand. Well, according to the time frame of Daniel 8, the time frame the passage itself gives us, comparing it with the historical record, the time frame refers to, like I said, the Medo Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, the empires that followed the Babylonian Empire in Daniel's day. After the death of Alexander the Great, his empire was divided among his four generals, four horns. One of those generals occupied the territory to the north of Israel, the land of Syria. Another of those generals occupied Egypt and governed over that land. And those two groups fought against one another. And guess who was often caught in the middle? Israel. And one of those leaders of the north, Antiochus IV, was savage in his treatment of the Jews. In fact, at one point, Antiochus abolished Israel's sacrifices, said you're not allowed to do that. He sought to impose Greek customs on God's people, said you need to worship our gods. He plundered the Jerusalem temple, killed Jews, suspended sacrifices in the Sabbath, and destroyed copies of the law. He then sent officials into the towns of Israel in order to enforce pagan customs. One of the books that's written between the Old and the New Testaments, it's not a scriptural book, it's not an inspired book, but it's a good historical record, and it's a a historical record Paul would have been aware of. It, It reads this way in one passage. The king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy or the rebellion came to Modine to make them offer sacrifice. You see what Antiochus did there around 167 B.C., he sought to thwart the true worship of God. And he sought to force God's people to rebel or to fall away from their faith. So he's like a man of lawlessness during a time of rebellion. But the picture doesn't end there. Jesus anticipated there would be another abomination of desolation after his day so in mark 13 14 he says when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong let the reader understand then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains jesus uses the language of the book of daniel an event that was now past in his day that had been fulfilled by the invasion of antiochus But he encourages his disciples to be on the lookout for another desecration of the Jerusalem temple. Daniel 8 had been fulfilled, and yet there was going to be another desecration coming. How? Are the chapters fulfilled multiple times? No, this time Jesus is referring to the prophecy of Daniel 9. Remember, an anticipated Messiah would be cut off. And then a ruler would come who would put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple set up an abomination that causes desolation. So one abomination had come in Israel's history, Daniel 8. But another abomination was coming, Daniel 9. And based on our interpretation of Mark 13, and again supported by the historical record, we understand Jesus' words were fulfilled around A.D. seventy during the Jewish civil war that broke out and led to the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Civil war broke out in Israel around AD 66, and the Zealots, one of the Jewish freedom fighter groups, they were eventually able to capture the Jerusalem temple and make it their base, their headquarters, for about two years. And the Jewish historian Josephus speaks with horror Of the way they invaded the sanctuary with polluted feet and mocked the temple ritual while the sanctuary was defiled with blood as factional fighting took place. In other words, this wasn't a spiritual group of people. They were just defending their land and their cause, and they actually desecrated the temple in their battle. But then when Rome returned in A.D. 69, they broke into the temple, they retook the land, they set up their idolatrous flags and their Roman symbols, and that would have reminded the Jews of what Antiochus did years ago. And again, to appeal to Josephus, he refers to the Roman soldiers offering sacrifices to their standards in the temple courts. And I think Jesus is telling the disciples, look, beware Both of these parties, the Zealots and the Romans, they're going to usurp the place that belongs to God. They're going to desolate his sanctuary. Both Israel's attackers and Israel's defenders were involved in rebellion, and it trampled God underfoot. It usurped the land, the place, that properly belonged to him. So I want you to see just how Paul can draw from all these different images ...throughout scripture and and utilize all these different uh, viewpoints to bring to mind a picture of rebellion and lawlessness. Throughout history, men and movements arise and they wage war against God and his people. They usurp to themselves honor and privileges that belong to God alone. They want the attention and glory that God alone deserves... And they seek God's people, they want to lead them away from their faithfulness to God and from their primary obligations to God's kingdom. And Paul wants us to be on the watch, on the lookout for such people. So the last question I would just answer today is, well, how does this plug into Paul's expectation? In other words, is there any more of this coming? We see that it's been occurring in history, biblical history even. But how Paul seems to imagine that there is another manifestation. Well, Daniel 8 was fulfilled in the time of Antiochus. Daniel 9 was fulfilled in the years around Jesus. Most of Daniel 11 also fulfilled in the time of Antiochus. But if you remember from our study of Daniel, there was one paragraph in Daniel that didn't match any of the historical records. And so we argued that it still awaited a future fulfillment. Let me read it to you one more time. Daniel eleven thirty six to 39. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will show no regard for the god of his ancestors, nor will he regard any god. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses. In other words, with reference to God, he is lawless. And with reference to the temple of God, the things that are properly God's, He doesn't respect them, and in fact, he would even want to usurp on their space and receive for himself what properly belongs to God alone. And he will then fight against God's people when they do not give their loyalty to him. So let me read you one last New Testament passage to try to connect it to the Daniel 11 passage, and that will inform us on how to be on the lookout For such forces. In Revelation 13, Jesus sees a beast coming out of the sea. And listen again for the language of Daniel in this passage. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? You see how that takes all the images from the book of Daniel, all the different beasts, and just kind of jams them all together in describing this authority that would act in this way. John continues the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So what does this beast do? He usurps God's authority. He fights against God's people. Now here's the deal with this beast. A lot of people reading this book in John's day and seeing ten horns and seven crowns and what have you, they would have thought of the Roman Empire. The city sat on seven hills. Reading the imagery there of the beast and knowing what they knew from the book of Daniel, the coming world empires, this beast matches Daniel's prediction of the coming Roman Empire. They would have read this beast as having authority manifest in the Roman Empire, which was persecuting God's people. And guess what? They would have been right. But it doesn't stop there. Because this beast has authority to rule for 42 months. And based on our previous studies of Daniel 9 and 12, and some of this we may get into next week to try to back it up, but based on the study of those books and what we've looked at in Revelation before, the 42 months we understand as the time period between the first and second comings of Christ. Antiochus in 167 BC, he oppressed God's people for about 42 months. John sees that there's going to be another 42-month period, but he takes it like an accordion. He stretches it out and says this will be what time is like between the first and second coming. So when people look at different historical figures and nations that have oppressed God's people and said that matches the beast of Revelation 13, guess what? They were right on that level. And then lastly, as we read in other passages, and again, this is what I want to focus on next week, it seems that this oppression and lawlessness and rebellion comes to expression in one final historical figure, the man of lawlessness that Paul is directing our attention towards in 2 Thessalonians 2. As John says in 1 John 2.18, You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many antichrists have come. So I wanted to lay all that foundation this morning and give you those passages in order to say, Paul is just tapping into a long tradition here of rebellions against God and those who would fight against God's people in order to say, this is what redemptive history has been like. This is what redemptive history is like now and before Jesus appears this is what redemptive history will be like. So here's, what I, here's why I give you all that information. Here's what it means for you, Christian. The Bible warns us that there will always be forces that will try to deter you from faithfulness to God. And so I would say search your life and search your heart and say, what are those things that would take me away from being faithful to God? What are the forces that vie in my life for complete loyalty to Jesus Christ and beware of them? What are the forces that would try to take the church away from its mission, to give the church a different direction, to tie it in with these forces of rebellion and lawlessness, resist them? The church's mission, its job, is to evangelize the world, to disciple the nations, to teach people to obey everything Jesus had taught them. And so beware of any force that would distract the church from that mission and that mission alone. Beware of anything that would keep you from loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, Paul expected the second coming to be the horizon within which God's people live. Think of a pilot. He always has to keep the horizon before him so he doesn't crash the plane. The second coming is the horizon within which God's people live. And so may that coming appearing and may that near presence give the focus and direction to your life as we wait for the Lord to appear. So let's give thanks together. and Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your kindness towards us to save us from our sins. Thank you that we are rescued from rebellion against you by the grace of the Lord Jesus and that we can love and serve you. And I pray that you would preserve us through whatever may come for your people, that we would be a people who are faithful to you, who love your truth and who serve you supremely. Lord, we do pray you'd forgive us of when we do not obey you. Forgive us for when we indulge thoughts of rebellion or lawlessness against your holy commands and make us a pure people who are faithful to you and may Jesus and his glory and his coming be ever more precious towards us. We thank you for that mercy, we thank you for that grace. We pray now you would bless, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before